Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, I pray that your mission and your plan for this world would be significantly advanced because of what we do here. I pray that you would come and ignite a fire for the nations of the world in these people. I pray that they would take back to their churches a boiling in their bones to see the Great Commission completed. So come and help me. Holy Spirit, glorify your Son here and among the nations, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 67. Let the nations be glad, as a title came from this psalm, and you'll hear it. I'll read the seven verses of this psalm. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make His face to shine upon us, that Your way may be known upon the earth, Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Amen. So what I want to do is uh, go back in history a few hundred years for a few minutes, then go out to the world and update us on what God has done since that historical moment, and then go into this text and listen to the Word of the Lord concerning the nations of the world. So let's go back first a few hundred years. The, the missionary endeavor of the Protestants in England burst forth out of the soil of a very rich, reformed, Puritan theology. Remember the Puritans. They were, they were the pastors and the teachers between 1560 and 1660 who wanted to purify the Church of England in accord with the theological and practical teachings of the Reformation. They had a view of biblical authority and God's sovereignty that produced an undaunted hope for the world. They were deeply stirred with a passion for God's coming kingdom. They really believed in Psalm 86, 8 and 9. It goes like this, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations that you have made shall come and bow down before you, O Lord. They shall glorify your name. They were gripped by this total confidence that one day God would take possession of all the nations and they would bow before him. It was a tremendous confidence in their hearts, and that was the confidence that gave birth to the modern missionary movement. But, but the Puritans were 150 years before the modern missionary movement, and we, we usually think of the modern missionary movement beginning with William Carey, 1792. But there were things happening among the Puritans with regard to missions 150 years before this. I'm going to give you a glimpse of one of those people, namely John Eliot. 
in America. Between the year 1627 and 1640, so now we're 150 years earlier, between 1627 and 1640, 15,000 people, most of them Puritans, emigrated from England to America. On the seal, I don't know if you knew this or not, but on the seal of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, there was a picture of a Native American. And out of his mouth, like this, written, coming out of his mouth, were the words of Acts 16, verse 9, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, that tells a huge story about the thinking of the first settlers, the Puritans, from England coming to America, and they created a seal of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and on the seal, a picture of an Indian, and out of his mouth coming, come over to Macedonia and help us. The mindset of the vast majority of the pilgrims who came from England to America was, we're on an errand into the wilderness to advance the kingdom of God and to reach the nations of the Algonquin and the Cherokee and the Iroquois and the dozens and dozens of tribes that were in America, the unreached peoples, the frontiers, the place where the gospel was going to bring victory among the nations. Now, one of those pastors, one of those people on the boat was John Elliot. He crossed the Atlantic in 1631. He was 27 years old, and a year later, he became the pastor of the first church in Roxbury, which was now a part of Boston, then a, a, a town about a mile away from from Boston, and something happened during his first 13 years of ministry that, that changed him forever. Cotton Mather, who wrote the history of those early days, pointed out that there were 20 tribes. He explicitly called them nations, nations of Indians in that vicinity to link up with the biblical term all the nations shall come and bow down before you. And there were 20 of these within a stone's throw of Roxbury where John Eliot was ministering. And Eliot entered into a kind of crisis period in his ministry where he felt, I believe in the infallible scriptures. I believe that the infallible scriptures teach an absolutely sovereign God. I believe that this sovereign God has promised that all the nations of America and of the world will one day bow the knee, and he could not escape the implication. So that age 40, I want to do a little survey here. Raise your hand if you're 40 or over. I just want to see who we are. Okay, that's a lot of you. <laughs> so this is for you. At age 40, he set himself to learn the Algonquin language. Th this was an extremely difficult language. I've seen words. There are words in this language that are 27 letters long, and it, it sounds like Hawaiian. You know, if I try to pronounce it, wah, 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 wah. And he mastered it. And before he died at age 84, so it's 44 years later, working till his last breath, he had translated the entire scriptures into Algonquin. He had translated Richard Baxter's Call to the Unconverted and several other books. He had established a network of churches. There were trained Indian pastors in these churches before this story came to an end. And his motto for life was, Prayers and pains through faith in Christ Jesus will do anything. One of the great tragedies of our land is that that was completely destroyed. We have much to grieve over with regard to our history. But what I want to say is that the earliest risk-taking 
painstaking, prayer-soaked, missionary adventure into the unreached nations of the world among Puritans was driven by a profound confidence in the sovereignty of God and a rich and robust Reformed theology. Because I think a lot of people do not associate Reformed theology with a passion for the nations. One of the great obstacles among many groups of having them even seriously consider the implications of God's sovereignty is that they blow it off as non-missionary, which in certain groups it has been, but not historically, not historically. So when 1793 comes, you not only have William Carey driven by this very same Reformed vision of God's triumph in the world because of His sovereign promises, but you have David Brainerd, you have Adoniram Judson, you have Alexander Duff, David Livingston. They're all driven by the same theology. They're all Reformed. They're all Calvinistic. They're all lovers of God's sovereignty, and they're all giving their lives away at great pain for the sake of bringing the nations into the kingdom of Christ. I just want you to feel that historically the modern missionary movement sprang up in the soil of Ligonier theology, desiring God theology, biblical, rich, robust, sovereign God theology. There's nothing at odds. In fact, it's the opposite between such theology and a passion for the nation. So I'm, I'm eager to have you put the two together because that kind of theology, I think, is the only kind that produces really radical obedience and intense worship and durable, persevering, fruitful commitment to world missions. Now, that's the glance, the glance backward. Now, what's, what's happened in the last 200 years plus? Let's look out for a moment. And if, you ha- if you're not aware of what I'm about to say, I hope you will, you will purchase, for example, Philip Jenkins' books on the situation now. He created the term Global South, and it's a term that refers to Latin America, Africa, Asia, and the stunning shift of the center of gravity of the Christian church from Europe to America to the south, that is, below the the equator by and large. Let me give you some statistics to show you what has happened. At the beginning of the 20th century, Europeans dominated the world church. 70.6% of the world's Christian population was European or European descent. By the end of the 20th century, so 11 years ago, the European percentage of world Christianity had shrunk from 70 percent to 28 percent of the total. And Latin America and Africa alone, without Asia, combined made 43 percent of the world's Christians. That is astonishing. In 1900, Africa had 10 million Christians, representing 10 percent of its population. 100 years later, the year 2000, this figure had grown to 360 million from 10 million, representing half of the continent's, continent's population. So quantitatively, this may be, Jenkins says, the largest shift in religious affiliation that has ever occurred anywhere in the history of the world. Mark Noel has a new book called 
The New Shape of World Christianity, published 2009. I recommend it. Here are some excerpts. The number of practicing Christians in China may be approaching the number in the United States. Live bodies in church are far more numerous in Kenya than in Canada. More believers worship together in church Sunday by Sunday in Nagaland than in Norway. More Christian workers from Brazil are active in cross-cultural ministry outside their homeland than those from Britain and Canada put together. Last Sunday, more Christian believers attended church in China than in all of so-called Christian Europe. This past Sunday, more Anglicans attended church in each, each of Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, and Uganda than did Anglicans in Britain and Canada and Episcopalians in the United States combined. Last Sunday, more Presbyterians were in church in Ghana than in Scotland. How would John Knox feel about that? <laughs> this past week in Great Britain, at least 15,000 Christian foreign missionaries were hard at work evangelizing the local British. Most of these missionaries from Africa and Asia. In a word, to quote Noel, in a word, the Christian church has experienced a larger geographical redistribution in the last 50 years than in any comparable period in history with the exception of the very earliest years of church history. So take a deep breath and let those things sink in of what God is up to in these days. When you hear statistics like that, be careful that you do not draw false inferences like the day of missions or the day of Western missions is over. There are people talking that way, and it is horrific, I think. To say, for example, just send your money to third world missions because they can do it better and we're not needed anymore. I, here's the way I translate that philosophy. Let them shed their blood, not us. We'll just give money. We nice, comfortable, secure Americans, we'll just send our money and then go to Disney World. We're not going to put our necks on the line anymore in Saudi Arabia or North India or Thailand or Myanmar or Indonesia. It is not only theologically and spiritually evil to think that way, it is missiologically mistaken because it is, number one, not true that there are third world Christians in all the people groups that need to be reached because the meaning of unreached is that there aren't there. There are, as we speak, I updated this from the joshuaproject.net yesterday who keep week-by-week -week tabs on these statistics. There are, as we speak, 6,872 unreached peoples. Now, you can go to their website, joshuaproject.net, to see the precise definition of unreached, representing 41% of the population of the world in those peoples. That's out of a total of peoples. This is ethno-linguistic, unique things that the Bible calls nations. You were slain, and by your blood, 
You ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, people, nation. Those four things overlap and are hard to define, but they are not, they are not countries. The 221 some countries of the world is not what that's talking about. That's Hittites, Jebusites, Cherokee, Iroquois, Hausa, Fulani. There are 16,000 plus peoples like this around the world and 6,872 of them with so few Christians or none that they cannot evangelize themselves. There's nobody to send money to. And the second reason it's missiologically flawed is that it isn't obvious that strategically and tactically the nearer tribes who are Christianized can reach the neighboring peoples because of age-old hostilities which a person from Brazil might overcome in Indonesia. It's not obvious. Let God be God here. We, we If your heart burns in this message, this is what I've dreamed of all my life. I just needed somebody to push me over the edge. I'm here to do that. So that you leave wherever you are and spend the rest of your days from age 70 to 80 in Indonesia. (laughs) Or 40 to 90. Or wherever. I really do recommend that you do some research at joshuaproject.net or finishingthetask.com is another regularly. I went there yesterday. It was updated as of February 12 this year. They keep tabs on the unengaged peoples, not just unreached, but unengaged. Unengaged means nobody is engaging them missiologic. They're not even there yet. There's no no missionary, no tribe, no nobody is there. And they've got that all documented, who they are, who's planning to go, who's not yet planning to go. So that's my look outward. I want you to feel both hope and challenge when you look back. I want you to feel hope and challenge when you look out at what God is doing. There There is no hope in my Bible or in any theological principle i know that america is guaranteed to be any that america is guaranteed to be anything other than a footnote in in some history book and this nation could be islam some muslim someday as far as i i, I know we we have a season we're a very young nation we're a, we're the wealthiest nation in the world why and with that i turned i turned to the to the text. Let me read it again. This is Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us. And what I just said is going is to set this up wrong if I don't correct. This psalm is not about America. The us here is not America. It's the, it's the people of God. And there are millions and millions of us in America, and we are filthy rich. Look at this building. And you all paid whatever to come to this conference, and all of us are wealthy. We're wealthy. By whatever standards in America you may feel you're not wealthy, you're wealthy. And there's a reason that the people of God have been blessed. And that's what this psalm is about. It's not about America. It's about the church. Which I think I'll be able to show you hermeneutically before we're done. May God be gracious to us. And oh, how he has been in so many ways. May God be gracious to us and bless us. And make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known upon the earth. Your saving power your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. 
Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. Oh, has it ever. Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota is the breadbasket of the world. We could feed the whole world with three states. God has blessed our soil in Minnesota. (laughs) You drive through Minnesota and look at that corn and that soil. You say, anything could grow here. It's so black. It's so rich. It's so awesomely blessed. Who did that? Why? God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Now, three big questions to ask of this psalm. Take them one at a time. Number one, what is the great purpose of God revealed in this prayer? It's a prayer. What is the purpose of God? And it is clear. The purpose of God in this prayer, this is the way you pray. When you're praying, thy kingdom come, this is the way you pray. God's purpose is to be known, praised, enjoyed, and feared. Those are the four purposes of God in this psalm. Let's just look at them. Number one, God's purpose is to be known. Verse two, that thy way may be known upon the earth. Thy saving power upon all the nations. So purpose number one, God means to be known by these 16,000 nations. God will not rest until he's known. The true God is known among all those nations. Number two, his purpose is to be praised. Verse three, let all the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Verse five, let the peoples praise. Praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. We should not rest until we see every people group praising the true God. This is a beautiful picture in your mind. All the languages of the world praising the Lord. Number three, God's purpose is to be enjoyed among the peoples. Verse four, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. God is not content until all the nations are glad in God, glad in God, not just praising God, not just knowing God, but rejoicing in God. And number four, feared, reverenced. Verse seven, let all the ends of the earth fear him. So the purpose of God is clear. To be known, praised, enjoyed, and reverenced among all the peoples. So just take yesterday's message and add at the end of every sentence, all the nations. All of them. Now, most of you don't know who J. Campbell White is, probably. But I'm going to quote from him, and then in a minute, tell you who he was. Here's what he said. Most men, I think he meant men and women, are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. I think that's true. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. Now, I think that's implied in our text. If we are children of God, uh, then the only thing that will bring true and lasting satisfaction is to throw our lives into the purpose of our Father. 
And the purpose of our Father is to be known and praised and enjoyed and reverenced among all the nations. Now, at that point, if I were you, I'd start to get restless and say, so are you saying that only missionaries can have a fully satisfied life? And that by implication, all of us should stop what we're doing and do that. That is, be a cross-cultural, home-leaving missionary. And my answer to that is no. It's, it's a biblical no. But let's answer it first by saying who J. Campbell White was. He, he was not a missionary. He was a businessman. And in 1906, he and others founded the layman's missionary movement because they watched what God was doing among students, the student volunteer movement, in which thousands of young people were dedicating themselves to world evangelization and leaving their homes and going to the hardest places of the world to spread the gospel and plant the church. And these laymen said, we can't miss out on this. So they formed the layman's missionary movement precisely to stay at home and get behind it with all their might. They wrote their mission statement like this, investigation, agitation, and organization. The investigation by laymen of missionary conditions, the agitation of laymen for adequate missionary policy, the organization of laymen to cooperate with the ministries and missionary boards in enlisting the whole church in its supreme and saving work for the world. That's the way J. Campbell White was thinking. So when I say by implication this psalm is saying, and J. Campbell White is articulating that, you can't, you just can't rest until you're engaged with this. I don't mean you're a goer. There are three kinds of people we like to say at Bethlehem. Goers, senders, and disobedient. And there aren't any other kind. And so I, I do not expect you nor want all of you to go. When, when Paul was heading for Spain, and he wrote his missionary letter called Romans to get support. I want you to speed me on my journey. He meant, don't go with me. That's what he said. Speed me on. Give me what I need. Hold up my hands. Supply me. You're not called to go to Spain. I'm called to go to Spain. Send me. We don't let any missionaries go out from our church. We have about 100 missionary units go out. We don't let any of them go unless they have a Barnabas team, we call it. And these are people that are gathering and said, we are holding this rope as you go down over the cliff. If you fail, it's our problem. And we're in your life for the duration. You can't do missions if people don't stay. So don't hear me saying that. But I am calling for engagement a thinking, a study, an investigation, organization, agitation kind of engagement in your local church. For Who's the advocate there for the unreached peoples? Not just vague missions like send some kids to Haiti. I'm talking unreached peoples that don't have anything and are in places, all of which today don't want you to come. Almost. The hardest places that are left are places where it's very difficult to go. But there are no closed countries. You can get in, you just can't get out. <laughs> the concept of a closed country would have been unintelligible to Paul, who spent every other weekend in jail. No, I don't expect all of you to go. So question number one to this text is, what's the purpose of God in this prayer? And the answer is to be, to be known, to be praised, to be enjoyed among the peoples of the world and to be feared. Second question, 
What is it that God aims to make known about himself among the nations? What does this psalm say God wants to be known? If he says, I want to be known and praised, what what do you want to be known and what do you want people praising you for according to this psalm? There are four answers. Number one, God aims to be known as the one and only true living God. And I, I gather this from the fact that an inspired Israelite poet is praying for his God, Yahweh, to be known among the peoples where a pantheon of pagan gods are already worshipped. So when he says, let all the peoples praise you, O God, he means let all of them turn from the false gods to the true and living God. That's number one. God wants to be known among the nations as the, the only true and living God. God. Number two, God aims to be known that He is a God of justice, and He does what's right. Look at verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity. So let them be glad because you judge the peoples with equity. I want to be known as the one who judges the peoples with equity. What does that mean? When the judgment of the nations comes, God will not be partial. No one will be condemned for the color of his skin. No one will be condemned for the size of his brain or the place of his birth. No bribes will be taken or considered. No sophisticated plea bargaining from any people group whatsoever. All will proceed on the basis of impeccable righteousness. Let this be known to all the peoples of the earth. They will stand on equal footing with every other nation before God, including Israel. And they will all be judged by one standard of justice, God. His truth in Revelation Generally, if they have that, have that, or especially if they have had that. God is a God of equity. He's a God of justice. And he wants to be known among the nations that he's that kind of God. Number three, God aims to be known that he's a God of sovereign power. I think we Reformed people should realize we have an edge with Islam. Wimpy gods are going to go nowhere in Islam. Big, strong, sovereign, all-knowing, all-controlling, evangelical, Christ-exalting God will go. We are called to engage with a people whose God for them is absolutely sovereign. So number three, God aims to be known as a God of sovereign power. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. What does that mean? God guides the nations on the earth. Many nations call themselves sovereign states. Ha! The Lord laughs. He he sits in heaven and laughs at the puny claims to sovereignty in rulers like Gaddafi. He laughs at their presumption and nations that think they are making their own way in the world like the United States of America. Acts chapter 17 verse 26 Their boundaries and their time periods are determined 
by the Lord. He allots them all. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Daniel 2.21, he removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel 4.35, he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? God aims to be known as the one who runs the world, guides the nations on the earth. They are not sovereign. One is sovereign, and he sets the destiny of every nation, and he wants them to know that. You sh- when, you, when you pray for rulers of the world, which you should do regularly, according to First Timothy, you should pray that they know they are not God. Humble them. Humble them, O God. Bring them to their faces. Bring the President of the United States to his face. Bring Omar Gaddafi to his face before the living God. And may he say like Nebuchadnezzar, I was an ox until I discovered that God rules the nations. I ate grass. My fingernails were like eagle's claws, and I didn't know which way was up until my reason returned to me, and I knew God is God and raises up kings and puts down kings. Pray that for the nations. God wants to be known among all the rulers of the world and all the nations of the world that he guides the nations. And number four, God aims to be known as a gracious God. This is the gospel now. God aims to be known as a gracious God. Verse 1, may God be gracious to us. Yes, it does say us at this point. And bless us and make his face to shine upon us that thy way may be known on the earth, thy salvation to all the, among all the nations. He wants to be known as a gracious God. And first, he's gracious to Israel. But why? Not only to Israel, but that his salvation may be known. And you might think, but could that mean Israel's salvation should be known? Ha ha. Israel is saved. You know it now. Sorry. Is that meaning here? No, it's not the meaning because he says in verse 4, let the nations be glad. That would not make the nations glad. Like, uh, just to inform you, the church is saved and you can go to hell. That doesn't make the nations glad. When it says that salvation may be known among all nations, he means that Israel's blessing should go to the nations and make them glad. This is the old Puritan hope, these four great truths about God. There is one true and living God. He is infinitely just and holy. He is sovereign over all the nations, and he is gracious to all who will believe. And that's what he wants to be known among all the nations of the world. That was true for Israel then. It's true for us now. Um, question number three. Why does God bless his people, make his face to shine upon them? That's us now. I'm going to argue. And the answer is really clear. You know, I said yesterday, my favorite phrase in the Bible is, in order that because I'm a purpose guy. I just got to know. I've got to know why blessings would come to John Piper. Born into a Christian home. I could have been born into a Hindu home. My parents never wanted for a meal. I had what I regard as the best education I could have had at every step of the way. I got a job without having to have a year of unemployment after I finished school. And God has blessed Bethlehem. And what? Why? What's the point of all the blessing? It's here. May God be gracious to us. It's not wrong to pray that. You ought to pray that. 
and bless us every way. Got no problem. Make as much money as you can. Just live on a tenth of it or whatever. Just keep it simple and give the rest away. Invest, 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 invest. Make your life an investment. Don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Lay up treasures in heaven. Make friends for yourselves in heaven. We have money for a reason. And here it comes. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine on us that, there it is, a little shortened form, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power. God has blessed us for the sake of the world. I'm tempted to generalize for America, providentially speaking, but let's just keep it to the church. And here's the hermeneutical movement. I said I would try to help you um, hermeneutically get from this psalm to, to your local church. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, is the promise behind this prayer. This is a prayer that God would bless Israel for the sake of the nations. Now, Genesis 12 is behind that. Here, and you know, you know these verses. I'll read them to you. God promises to Abraham... I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. So this psalm is just praying that. I will bless you and make your name great, so that, same logic, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What a spectacular promise made to Israel. Israel. All the families, 16,000 people groups are going to be blessed because of Israel, because of Abraham, the covenant of Abraham, this rich root of the olive tree. This promise is picked up in Isaiah 49, verse 6. I will give you, Israel, I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And where is that quoted in the New Testament? It's quoted by Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13.47 as their mission when they're kicked out of the synagogue. They quote Isaiah 49, 6, which is picking up on Genesis 12, 2 and 3, which is prayed in Psalm 67. And their point is the church's mission to the Gentiles, the nations, is the extension of the Abrahamic covenant to those for whom it was intended. Who are the children of Abraham? Those who have the faith of Abraham are the children of Abraham. Wild olive branches are all over the world ready to be grafted in to this magnificent tree to which you, Johnny, come latelys, were grafted in when the branches were broken off until the full number of the Gentiles come in. And when they come in, all Israel will be saved. This is what we're after. We want to see this thing wrapped up and it, it's wrapped up through world missions. This gospel will be preached as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. It's what we want. It's what we pray for. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on the earth. The way the angels do it in heaven perfectly, totally. So my closing stress is that the, the reason we're blessed is in the little word that in verse 2 of Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us that your way may be known. So I, I just think every time you reach into your pocket and, and pull out this thing or into your purse... And, and find one of these, which you just, you say, why? Why? 
Why does these keep coming into my life? Buying me a house and car and, and food and, and that you will now think among all the other right things to do with your money, this is one huge thing. Blessing is on the church in America for the sake of the nations. And even though the center of gravity has moved from Europe to America and now to the global south, my prayer is, I'm simply, I'm, <laughs> I'm in God's face about this. No! No, 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 no. The church in North America will not be left behind in this process. We will not hand over our mission to the global south. Don't leave us. Don't take the blessing from us of being a means of advancing your kingdom. We really, really, at least thousands, millions of us want to be spent and spend ourselves for the sake of the nations. So I think the purpose is pretty clear here, that we are blessed in order to be a blessing for the nations. And that doesn't mean you all go, but it does mean you all go or send, that you're engaged in some way. So let me close with a quote from 1648. Um, This is written by the Parliament... Uh, concerning the Indian peoples of New England, Parliament of England. The utmost ends of the earth are designed and promised to be in time the possessions of Christ. The ends of the earth shall see his glory, and the kingdoms of the world shall come, become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. And if the dawn of the morning be so delightful, what will be the clear day? If some beginnings be so full of joy, what will it be when God shall perform his whole work, when the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and east and west shall sing together the song of the Lamb? God is going to get this done. So I just encourage you, don't miss out. Join this invincible purpose of God. So, Father, I pray now that you would move in power and you would awaken in this room and all these people touch a passion for your supremacy in all things, for the joy of all peoples. Through Jesus Christ, amen.